Hello, racing world, and welcome to The Chrono Show. The Chrono Show is an endurance industry podcast for event producers, race directors, timers, and a variety of industry insiders. The show focuses on the history of this unique industry, the individuals that created it, the current state of affairs, and where it all goes from here. The show is hosted by Mike Malisi from Chrono Track, that's me by the way, with guests from all across the industry and a few from outside it too. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the Chrono Show. Five, four, three, two, one. We are Well, hello, Racing World, and thanks for joining the show. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Don Cardong from the Lilac Bloomsday Run. Don's a athlete, a former Olympian, a teacher, an entrepreneur, a race director, and a esteemed, highly regarded industry leader. Don, thanks very much for being here. Great to be on the show. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So I'm excited for this. You, As we said right before we kicked off here, you and I don't know each other at all. I think I might have shaking your hand one time at a running USA or, or something like that. I'm an East coast guy. So uh, Bloomsday is something that's always avoided me, but I've been in this industry f- for a few years and it's, it's such a legendary event. I'm just dying to, to pick your brain on uh, a lot of the ways that you built that over time. Thanks for being oh, here. It's great to have it described as a legendary event. Uh, we've been around long enough that we got to call it something. So that's right. And we're still, still going pretty strong, not counting the COVID d- days, but yeah. Uh, other than that, we've been doing good. So yeah. So first of all, I said this a moment ago, but congratulations on your recent um, retirement. Well, well deserved, uh, I'm sure. Do you mind to start off today? Could you kind of give me your your background and what brought you to the industry? And then I have about ten thousand questions about Bloomsday itself. Sure. Well, um, as you mentioned, I was um, you know running as an elite runner from uh, well from high school all the way through. Um, the 1976 Olympics was my uh, best moment. That was um, when I finished fourth in the marathon. And just prior to that, about uh, two years before that, <clears throat> I had moved to Spokane uh, to, to take a teaching job. Um, and I was a, a sixth grade elementary school teacher. And um, But I was still training twice a day, very intense training. Um, and I did that. And even did one year after uh, the Olympics. But uh, what had happened uh, in the Olympic year is I was invited down to the Peachtree Road Race. And uh, people would have to have been around a long time to kind of understand what running was like in the early 70s and even the mid 70s. Uh, the largest races, the largest race I'd ever been in was about 200. Um, and that was, was I think maybe the beta breakers was uh, up around 5,000 at that time. But there really weren't a bunch of big races around the, the U.S. or around the world. Um, even Boston, Boston Marathon wasn't very big then. It was famous, but it wasn't very big. So when I went to Peachtree in Atlanta, um, I was just blown away. I mean, they had, I think that year they had 2,000 runners. And um it was it was everything that uh, I think Bloomsday eventually tried to become, which was you had citizen runners, people just kind of trying to get in shape. Uh, you had Olympic runners. Um, Bill Rogers and I kind of duked it out, and that was one of the few times that I beat him. But I did beat him, and uh, and again I just thought, wow, this this thing is fabulous. You know, they run through the city core, and 
Um, and it was just uh, really struck me as something special. So um, after I got back from the Olympics and there was still some interest in, um, in my running and, and there had been some, uh, there were some small races here in Spokane that the uh, Heart Association was organizing, you know, about 150 uh, people in them. And so a reporter from the paper showed up uh, at one of these that I was running in and, and she asked me, she said, well, what do you think of all this interest in your sport? And all, all that interest at that time was 150 people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I said, well, yeah, you know, I, I ran the Peachtree Road Race last summer and, uh, and it was fabulous. And I think we could have something like this in Spokane. So she wrote a, a, an article in the paper um, and I guess I still had enough uh, name recognition that I could get an article where I would just say something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but she put that in the paper and, and that actually started the ball rolling. I had some people approach me and say, uh, gosh, this is a great idea. Can we help? Um, the local JCs um, eventually picked it up as a project and um, gosh, we were off and running. And so um, the first year was 1977, uh, and, um, you know, we were not well organized, but we were organized well enough and with enough, uh, interest in the community that we had about 1200 runners. So I said, wow, that's amazing. I never thought we could get that many people. Um, and a good friend of mine, they were roommates at the time. He's, he, when I told him what we were planning, he said, well, you'd be lucky to get a hundred runners. Mm-hmm. So 1200, was quite, uh, amazing and and um and so we were off to a good start and then uh you know in the the next year we actually got into a big dispute with the aau about whether we had to have aau cards as well as you know an entry fee to enter bloomsday and i we we said no way but we were in the newspaper for you know day after day about this dispute And as they say, any uh, publicity is good publicity. Mm -hmm. And uh, that got our name out even more. We grew from that first year of a little over 1,000 to 5,000 the second year, 10,000 the third year. I think then we went to about 13 and a half, then to 17 to 20. So, I mean, we just grew like crazy. So uh, that's how we got started. And uh, once we started uh, drawing these numbers of people, we were like a lot of other events around the country sort of saying, how do we organize this? How do we, how do we keep track of all these people? How do we time them? Um, you know, how do we do all this? And we would get together with some of the other um, race directors that were in a similar position and just sort of, you know, brainstorm, you know, uh, what do you guys do? How did that work? You know, um, I think the timing was probably the biggest one because prior to that, uh, the way you got timed, if at all, was uh, everybody got funneled into the same chute. Um, you were given a, a a tongue depressor with a number on it mm-hmm. and uh, the number that you finish, and then you kind of figured it out after that. So, uh, you know, that worked almost okay the first year, but then 5,000, it just blew that system apart. And so our volunteers just eventually developed a system to where we could time. But anyway, so the, the biggest issues those first years were just managing the numbers, which were uh, so uh, unheard of. And there were no experts around that knew how to do it. So we, we all put our heads together and figured it out. 
And and what was your total tenure with the organization overall? What was what now? Your total tenure with Bloomsday? Okay, so I was um, I was the founder. I was not the race director, um, and we were organized as a nonprofit. And so we had a a president of our uh, board. Uh, I did that after about the third or fourth year. Did it for a while, and after that, I said, um, you know, this is not a. And it was a volunteer position. I said, this is not a volunteer position. This is something that needs a full time person. So we hired a race director. I wasn't uh, the person who was hired, and I, I didn't wasn't interested necessarily in it. Um, but uh, so I was still on the board from that very first year all the way until in 2004. I think it was our third race director. She retired, and uh, I expressed interest if they would have me in in being the race director. So 2004 uh, through. 2019 was my tenure as actual race director. That is amazing. Okay. So I think I need to understand a little bit about Spokane before we get into the race, because in the research that I was trying to do to prepare for this, I was surprised by how small Spokane is as a a population. Yeah. So a quarter million or so people that sound about right. A quarter million would be the size of the city. Um, the county is about 400,000, yep. but but we're not like um, Boulder, for example, which is uh, not very big, but is close to Denver. We're not very close to any big cities. Um, you know, Seattle is probably the closest. It's, you know, it's five, six hours away. Um, so uh, we did draw from a lot of smaller communities around the Spokane area, uh, but we're, we drew a lot of participants from a really pretty small population base. We still do really. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because I'm, I'm, I can't get the numbers to compute in my, in my mind. So if I say Spokane proper, let's say as a quarter million people in round numbers, if you, if, if Bloomsday at its peak had 60,000 some odd registrants, let's say, if you applied that math to Manhattan, You'd have eight and a half million people in New York proper, not even just Manhattan, but the five boroughs proper. You'd have eight and a half million people, which would mean you'd have to get 2.2 million people to come out and run New York. And so it's it's so mind-boggling, yeah, the proportion of athletes to the local community that I just I just can't make sense of it. But, but before we go to the actual math, I want to understand Spokane a little bit better because I think I, I like to think of races as First of all, I'm not a race director. I work for a timing company. I'm, I've never owned a race. I've never put on a race from start to finish. Never. But when I think about races or describe them to other to, to others, I I generally talk about the ingredients that I think make a great race, and then the recipe for how you actually put all that stuff together. And for the ingredients, I I would assume you're right on the timing. So Frank Shorter. Um, wins gold at the Olympics. Um, it's televised. The it, it, it's the spark that ignites the first gigantic running boom. Right? right. Then I'm curious about the nature of of Spokane as the ingredients for for what the draw is to even get that many people. I know it's beautiful. What what else is it about Spokane, given how geographically separate it is from other major metros? What what draws people? to Bloomsday and even allows it to potentially get as big as it is? Well, uh, the one thing I will say is that Spokane was 
attuned to distance running because of Jerry Lindgren. He was um, a, a local kid who, in the summer after he graduated from high school, had had maybe his greatest race when he ran against the Russians in the Russian-American meet down in Los Angeles, and uh, and he beat two um, seasoned veterans from from Russia when. You know, they were kind of the, the standard internationally in terms of distance running. And uh, here you, you have this kid that's just out of high school. Uh, and people were crazy about it. I wasn't in Spokane then, but I, I even uh, growing up on the other side of the state, uh, we knew all about Jerry. So when I moved here, um, and he wasn't the only one. There's And there's a lot of, you know, Rick Riley had, had run really well, set the, uh, I think, the two-mile uh, high school record. Uh, ran for Washington State. So there were a whole slew of really good runners coming out of here before I even got here. And um, so when I when I came here, um, I knew I was coming to a community that, that appreciated distance running. And that ended up being at least part of the reason that when we said, hey, we have this other idea of a, a big race with, we'll have some Olympic caliber athletes, but uh, mostly you're all invited. Uh, it was fertile ground, really. Another thing that had happened here, uh, Spokane uh, had a World's Fair in 1974. And um, so uh, the whole downtown area had been renovated. Uh, brand new park uh, where we finished the first few years. People were really excited about the community and, um, you know, the, the having had the World's Fair. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot of interest in doing things. And we were I think maybe we were one of the first events to come along, new events to come along to say, here's an idea, here's something we can do. Uh, So there was that. And then I think actually being in a smaller city was kind of an advantage in a way because you don't have a lot, you know, people don't have a lot of other options. You know, if you want to see a professional sports team, I mean, we have some really good minor league uh, professional teams, but if you want to see, uh, the majors, you, you go to Seattle or you go to Portland to see, um, you know, professional basketball. So you have to, you, there's really the things here locally, uh, people get pretty excited about. If there's something unique, um, they get behind it. I'm not sure that's as true now because Spokane has grown a lot since 1974, excuse me, 1977. Um, but it's still true. We're still isolated in, in a fairly large geographical region and people I think still like things that are local in nature and they want to support them. So that all those things I think really helped us uh, that first year. And and we do have a beautiful city and um, our course kind of follows the Spokane river pretty much. Um, And so uh, all of that works, I think pretty well. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you about the, the kind of that Northwestern, I always think of Portland as the example. Spokane, I think, has a similar look where you have beautiful architecture, but it almost looks like the a forest grew out of the city. <laughs> you know, we have beautiful, beautiful tall trees and the, the the thick smell of the evergreens and all that kind of stuff, but but you're still in a major metro area. So you have a beautiful city, small, but beautiful city. You have rivers, mountains, beautiful tree line, architecture, historic neighborhoods. A lot of those things that that runners are just drawn to. That's why they like road racing instead of running on a track, let's say, right? Yeah, yeah. So you have natural natural beauty, 
I didn't know the World's Fair angle. That's really interesting. And then you have the spark of the Olympics that nationally kind of sets off a running a running boom. Why why 12K when the race was born back then versus some of the more common distances at the time? Well, I, I, I was partially looking at um, Peachtree, uh, but some, there were some other races that were around then, um, that, and they were all sort of in the somewhere between, um, you know, six and nine mile distance. And that made sense because it's, it's far enough that somebody's not just going to, I mean, they, they could, but they're not going to just sort of jump into it and run it and run it. They're, they're going to train for it. It's, a, but it's a challenge, you know, they have to ask themselves, can I really do this? Um, and so it really uh, kind of inspires people to do things, something they're not, you know, used to doing, but it's not so far that they're going to be discouraged. Like as you get up to a, you know, a half marathon or something, um, a lot of people say, well, that's too far. You know, I can't do that. I mean, runners won't, won't, they'll do the half marathon and marathon and all the other events, but for people, general people in the community that we were trying to reach, um, you know, they, they will do a 12 K, um, but it's it's a challenge for them, and so that's a good thing, and and that uh, speaks to people, I think. I think that's still that's, true today. That that distance and its draw for people. So, um, you know, we didn't actually we weren't actually twelve k the first year. Uh, we were about eight miles, and and in those days, uh, the actual exact distance of road courses uh, wasn't as much of an issue as it became a few years later. Yeah. Um, so about eight miles was uh, seemed about the right distance, and we found a course that uh, kind of fit that. Um, so I guess um, it wasn't until maybe I've forgotten whether it's the fourth or fifth year that we finally, uh, when you know specific race distances be- became uh, more important for people, that we said, well, we can't do we can't do a 10k because we can't find a course that's really 10K. Yeah. Plus, we've been doing about eight miles, so let's find something around eight miles. And we kind of uh, plotted out this one course, measured it. It came real close to 12K, so we said, okay, let's 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 go with 12K. Yeah. I think yeah. one of the funniest things, actually, is why Americans who were so resistant to the metric system embraced uh, 10 kilometers. And I'm told that one of the reasons they did it at Peachtree was because Jeff Galloway had, had been in the Olympics and uh, run the 10,000 meters. And um, so they thought that was a cool thing. And everybody else, as they were starting races in that day, said, well, let's let's, let's do something K yep. <laughs> as well. Yeah, it was exotic at the, it was exotic or uh, maybe contrarian at the time. Yeah, kind of really a, unique. Kind of, a, kind of a connection to the Olympics and mm-hmm. And, and uh, a nod to the international community, maybe, but whatever it was, it's um, we've stuck with it. Well, you did something right because you, you started to give the first few years here a couple minutes ago. But I just, I'm just baffled by it. They're not even um, steps forward in the growth of the race. Everything for your first 15 years seems to be in gigantic leaps and bounds. First of all, I love. That your oh, this is your top male finishers, your first place finishers, Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers in years one and two, yeah. respectively. What a what a cool soundbite for, oh, yeah. for the race. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and those were names that people people knew. Uh, yeah. Frank had, had gotten the gold medal in 1972 and then the silver in 76. And uh, Bill Rogers was kind of the big name, you know, coming out of the Northeast. So having those guys come in, um, yeah, people were interested. And, yeah, instant. Yeah. run Frank Shorter and Bill Rogers, you know, even yeah. though they were miles behind. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that worked well. Well, those are two fantastic ingredients, like we said a minute ago, the, per- the perfect people for the right exposure at the exact right time in, in history. And so here, here's here's what I'm – here's the couple things in this uh, track record of your growth that are just blow me away. So 1977, as you said, I showed 1,200 finishers. This is off of the just the Bloomsday site. So in your first couple years, 1,200 finishers, 5,000 finishers, then year three, 10,000, then 13,000, then 15,500, then 20. So within your first – six years, you're the equivalent of a world-class event in today's time, which would have been uh, absolutely unheard of at the time. Uh, b- uh, back in, that would have been from 77 to 81 is what I just rattled off. What what was what was happening in those first six or seven years to go from zero to literally 25, 26,000 athletes? Was that, was that, I'm curious to know how much you can credit that with the running boom versus successful marketing versus repeat athletes that just come in, coming back year after year. What, what was going on in those early years to achieve that growth that quickly? Well, some of it was uh, local excitement. I mean, I think once we got to 5,000, every, the community sort of, you know, said, wow, this is amazing. You know? And so uh, some of it was that. Uh, and every race in the country that was uh, organized reasonably well even uh was doubling from one year to the next uh it was very common in those years to to have almost every race growing um i mean i think we probably grew more than others but uh but they were all getting a lot bigger and some of that was uh i mean i think um you know the excitement of, of uh you know uh, frank shorter's performances bill rogers uh, and others uh, was of interest to people that people said, "Hey, uh, Americans can run the marathon. How about mm-hmm. that?" Yeah, I knew. And prior to that, I mean, you know, before Frank did that, I mean, if you could find, you could find a few people that would, um, you know, were good distance runners, but 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 almost everybody wanted to run the mile. You know. Mm-hmm. When I was in high school and even in college, that was the gl- glamour distance. Beyond the mile, well, we don't do so well as Americans. So, yeah. um, so that was that was nationally something that was going on. And then, and then actually, a lot of the work that uh, Dr. Ken Cooper was doing on uh, the relationship of aerobic exercise with heart health, um, people were saying I shouldn't be sedentary. You know, I should do something good for myself, and. You know, running was a, was a perfect way to do that. Hey, anybody can run, right? Uh, so uh, you just had to get yourself fit to do it again, and suddenly you're, you're feeling pretty good. And uh, so his work really um, in, in quantifying uh, what, is, what do we mean by aerobic exercise and how, to, how does that impact your health, that was big as well. Those two mm-hmm. things, the the Frank Shorter phenomenon and the uh, health aspect were really driving the numbers around the 
the country and eventually around the world. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. So if you if if that gets us through, let's say 1986, you're about the decade into the race existing. You're at 46,000 finishers, roughly, in 1986. It's just a mammoth, a gigantic event. What 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 portion of the rate of the race in your mind would be local versus someone that flew in or or you know drove drove multiple hours to get there at that point when you have that size, 45,000 athletes? Yeah, I mean, it's mostly local. And we when we market, we market mostly to our to local. And by local, I would say, you know, you know within the um, marketing area of our TV stations. Uh, and uh, so that goes well into uh, almost into western Montana, north Idaho, throughout eastern Washington, and even up into Canada. So those are all areas where we draw, draw most of our participants from. But we get we get somebody from all, almost every state and, you know, a dozen foreign countries as well. Uh, so uh, it, it's kind of that sort of demographic uh, mix. And what's, what is the, what's the DNA of the event at this point? How, how would you, what are the characteristics of the event? Is it, you know, post-race party? It's the, it's the every man's marathon, kind of like peach tree. It's half race, half parade. What is it, what does it feel like in those early years? Um, in the early years or now? Well, I'm, I'm still kind of stuck in this 1986. I can't believe you within your 10, your first 10 years, you made it to 46,000 athletes. I'm just, I'm just blown away by that. Yeah. Um, well, I think, uh, I mean, what it is now, uh, what almost all of our entrants will tell you, except for the, oh, I, there's a, you know, there's a number of people that are real competitive and want to, they either want to comp- compare their times with their previous times or want to see if they can beat their, uh, their buddy that they train with. And, and so the, it's competitive among that group, but that's a pretty small percentage of our total most people just want to be out there with um, family and friends and, you know, on a nice spring day and, uh, and uh, go the distance. And uh, so that's the primary DNA. But we've always felt it was important that we have a connection to um, the competitive aspect for those who are competitive and all the way to the Olympic uh, uh, connection as well, because we were that from the very beginning. Uh, we still get um, we still get Olympic caliber runners uh, taking home the prize money. Um, it's very it's very strange in a way that um, we have these great East African runners who uh, who dominate because um, it's just you know most people think that's pretty interesting, but it's not why they're in the race. Um, yeah. So uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting. I don't know how we describe our DNA, but, but the very first year, I think we even in the posters uh, said "Run with the Stars," and um, you know I think it's still that way. I mean, there these we have the we have the slowest runners in the world and the fastest runners in the world all in the same streets. So yeah, and it remains that it remains that way today. You said as well, right? Yeah, yeah, and. Um, and I think actually, and the, the the most exciting thing, which we of course missed this year, uh, is having thousands and thousands of people on the starting line. There's just an energy to that that yeah. 
you just can't beat. It's just every year I'm, when I'm there, I'm just so excited to, to be in that crowd and to everybody is kind of wired to, to get going. And, and it's just fabulous. And that's, that's true in other big races around the country as well. And I love that part of this. I, I was going to ask you, I, I asked, um, I've asked a couple of our, our guests this question, which is I'm fascinated by this, this class of events born in the mid to late seventies, which is a really impressive class, right? So Bloomsday, Cooper River Bridge Run, Grandma's Marine Corps Marathon, um, Boulder Boulders in there somewhere. Like they they all they all emerged around the same time, right? And they, which is great. But the part that fascinates me is that they all they all stayed so relevant for such a long time, and they all were born at around the same time. Do you do you credit that class of events with? something in particular that, that allowed them to achieve that longevity? Well, the longevity part is mostly a uh, organizational management piece. But usually, but, but when you have an event that's successful, uh, you don't want to see it go away. And I think that because of that, people, you know, the board of directors or the, or the main organizing group, uh, they say, what do we need to do to keep this thing healthy and um, keep bringing people back. And I know our uh, board and the different committees are always uh, asking themselves that question. What do we need to do to keep, uh, keep being relevant to people, keep them coming back, keep them uh, spreading good word of mouth. Uh, and, and then it's a matter of, uh, you know, do you have the organizational pieces in, in place to, uh, to keep going year after year. And, uh, but, but I think the main thing is, uh, I know with us is everybody says, God, we love this event and we want it to keep going. So what do we need to do? And, you know, people put their heads together and figure that out. Yeah. What do you, what do you think, what do you think are the characteristics or what, what's the, the threshold I think is maybe the right way to say it, where an event kind of transforms from being, an event hosted by someone, it's allowed to happen in a municipality versus, you know, there's events that take on the personality of the city. Actually, I guess the right way to say it is the city takes ownership of the event, maybe not literally or legally, but it feels part of the community. Boston is one of those. Bloomsday is one of those. Shamrock is one of those. There's, there's these events that just kind of become part of the fabric of the community. And I'm kind of searching for why or how that happens because i think that's what a lot of today's race directors are trying to achieve but there's so many that they they, they might get drowned out uh, versus all the other events that are out there do you, do you do you have a sense for what enabled you to cross that threshold well it is a lot harder now because there's a lot more competition uh, you know from other events that are pretty similar um so i think it's a harder uh thing to do now then um, when we started, um, you know, we drew a lot of people from Seattle that first year. Um, and it's harder to get them now, even though they may have heard of Bloomsday and want to run it. But they go, well, we've got all these other events that are pretty big and pretty cool going on in the Seattle area. So I don't know if I want to go over to Spokane. So, uh, whereas that first year is kind of like, wow, they got 
they got Frank Shorter running there, and they got they're going to run through the city, and um, and we pulled a lot of people over, a lot of really good runners from Seattle, Seattle area, uh, those first few years as a result, um, and some of them were teammates of mine because I was a member of Club Northwest, that was a Seattle-based club, and they all came over. They did that for a number of years. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's much harder now to, to do that. But I guess um, the, maybe the only thing I can suggest is that you try to connect with anything in your community that's important to your community. Um, with us, we have, Spokane has a big lilac festival in the, in the spring. And so um, one of the things that I was trying to do actually is to position Bloomsdale the first weekend of the Lilac Festival. Mm-hmm. And I missed. <laughs> and, and by the time I figured that out, it was too, too late. I already had Frank lined up and we were already printing materials and all that stuff. So we said, well, we'll just, we'll just kind of uh, uh, do it this, this way this year. Maybe we'll get in with the Lilac Festival next year. And then the, eventually, um, Either, you know, the local, uh, I don't know, the citizenry or the uh, movers and shakers said, no, don't don't do that because this is another you're giving us a whole uh, different weekend when you can draw tourists to Spokane. Uh, So stay where you are and not just fine. But I think we did try to to. uh, uh, be part of that spring festival. And, um, you know, you think of Boulder, Boulder, uh, that's the same thing there and Peachtree, um, you know, they kind of, I don't know what all goes on in, in Atlanta on the 4th of July, but it's a, obviously a big weekend. That to me is the most amazing success story because, you know, that's the worst time, uh, to run in Atlanta. And yet they keep drawing over 50,000, people every year from all over the south well it's it's like you like you said it's uh it's it's half race half parade i don't even know if that's if they would like it described that way but that's that's how i think about it but those the the crowd if you watch the herd of people go through at Peachtree, and i imagine bloomsday is like this too they it's it's like they wouldn't imagine doing anything else that day it's the fourth so you go do Peachtree, and then you go do whatever else you're going to do on yeah, on the fourth. But it's, it's kind of like Christmas morning. You're just it's just it's just something that everybody does, and then you go about your day. It's a tradition. Yeah. 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 So did you did you set out with the objective to become big when Bloomsday was founded? What 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 did you want it to 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 be when when it began? Um, I know you said I know you said for the for the community, and you wanted it to be a place where everybody could come run. <clears throat> definitely. But did you did you specifically strive to make it the biggest or the or the fastest athletes or the most entertainment? What what did you want from it or want it to be when you when you began? Um, I think uh, I wanted it to have the same feel as as uh, Peachtree had, um, and that was um, partially uh, just the celebration part of it. Part of it was the competition part of it. Uh, and I would say that uh, we didn't, <clears throat> I didn't think we'd ever get bigger than about 3,000. So mm-hmm. when we had 5,000 the sec- second year, I said, <clears throat> excuse me, 
No problem. All of us who were or- helping organize it, then we sort of said, so what should our goal be? Uh, should we try to be the biggest that we can be? And how big is that? We didn't know. Um But we said, uh, what we will try to do is give the best possible experience to everybody that comes. So whatever that means, we'll try to make it fun, exciting, um, something that's memorable for them. And uh, we even had, uh, when we were really, you know, some of our biggest years, we, we made a point of saying, our goal is not to just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, as as fun as it is to see how big this event could get, uh, our goal is just to make it as good as possible for everybody who comes. And if that's fifty thousand, then wonderful. If that's forty or seventy or whatever, we'll just try to manage it as well as we can so they all have a good time. So that's that was really the goal, um, and the size just sort of came along with that. I think. Was there a focus on? <clears throat> financial performance at the beginning or was it was it not relevant back then um for, for bloomsday in particular do you mean uh did, did we uh well we we're very well of our finances but uh, well i'm curious i'm curious to know especially at the beginning if the it goes back to the goal question i guess so you said the goal was to create the best experience possible for everybody was the was there also a goal or an expectation to to make money at first or did that just happen organically because of the success of the event? Well, the first year we lost money. Uh, so, um, you know, we had to, we had to sort of do some things and, and we got bigger that helped us to uh, the second year to actually make money. Um, but as a nonprofit, uh, those, that surplus that you generate mm-hmm. um, has to be put into the event in some fashion. So um, when we, when we generated a, a surplus, we said, what can we do? Um, better next year. Uh, and we wanted to have a reserve and we built a reserve, but we also uh, said, what can we do with those funds? So we didn't, we really didn't have um, many problems with uh, generating a surplus for most of our years. Um, and we did it and probably about four or five years ago, we started to have a drop off in numbers that um, we couldn't sustain some of the things we were doing financially. So we had to make some adjustments there to get back in the black. But uh, um, but it's never been a goal to make money, um, but it's been a goal to be certainly to be financially solvent and uh, to be able to do new things, to have enough of a reserve that you can do um, things that you think might be fun and exciting for people. And were, were charities, charitable giving and fundraising, were those part of the essence of the race from the beginning or was there a certain point in time where those came into the scene? Those came along later, um, and uh, we were not uh, organized as a fundraising uh, entity. Um, We did some things where we were helping different organizations, but uh, it wasn't our intent. But about uh, maybe 20 years ago, uh, we said, you know, we should, uh, because people do like to see that they're raising money for charity. So about 20 years ago, we said, let's have an official charity each year and let people make contributions to that and uh, give some visibility to the charity. Um, Because some of them are, they're they're all great organizations and some of them are great, but nobody knows about them. So we figured if we don't raise them much money, if we raise their uh, visibility, it'll be very helpful to them. So 
So we have been doing that for about uh, 15 or 20 years. I can't remember exactly when we started, but uh, so we do keep an eye on that, but it's not our primary purpose. Thank you for that. I'm um, I'm going to transition a little bit. I'm so I I volunteer a lot of races. I'm on a couple different race crews and committees. Uh, sometimes timing, and then I'm I typically end up at either uh, start or finish is my general responsibilities. I'm just I'm I'd love to hear more about the sheer logistics involved in shuffling around those you know fifty fifty five sixty thousand people on on race day how is a start line managed for 60,000 people what what do you do for an expo for 60,000 people what's the course like especially cuz it's a relatively short distance for a crowd of that of that size can you just kind of give me a sense of if you were trying to teach a regular quote unquote regular race director about what this this thing is like i'd, I'd love to hear some context and examples on how to actually facilitate this thing well, over the years, we tried different strategies on how to get people started. Um, at one point, we even had three starting uh, streets, and they merged different different points down the uh, line. Yeah, like New York. Yeah, and that worked okay. Um, but we kind of, you know, it actually really was once we went to, um, you know, computer. Well, I guess we call it computer chip tr- timing, um, and. Once we went to that and we could put everybody on the same street and they would all get uh, timed individually, um, that was much better. We like having one big street filled with, with everybody. Uh, and it's more exciting and uh, it's, it's easier to manage. But you still have to start in waves. So we start in basically in waves of, of about 5,000 uh, at a time. And uh, the elites go before that in a, a little smaller way, but, um, and, and those are all color, color coded. So, yep. uh, we go basically by, um, the time they tell us they can run unless they tell us they can run, you know, five minute pace. And then we kind of insist that they prove it. Yeah. Uh, but for most people, um, we either have history of, of how fast they can do the course or, um we we accept their um the by the honor system sort of you know as long as they're not wanting to be seated too far up um you know it's funny because before we did that one of our some of our early years we used to have people line up by the honor system so you'd have the you'd have uh signs that would say five minute pace six minute pace seven pace and um and we had um our one of our U.S. senators, uh, Slade Gorton, was a pretty good runner, and he would come over and, and run Bloomsday. And he was interviewed by one of the TV stations uh, ahead of time. Well, what tips do you have for Bloomsday runner, Senator? And he said, well, one thing you should do is line up ahead of where where you actually can run. We've <laughs> <laughs> been telling people not to do that <laughs> for months, and there was a senator saying this is a good strategy. So. But yeah, that didn't work so well. So what we do now does seem to work pretty well. Uh, it does take some time to try to get people seated appropriately as much as you can, but uh, but it does work pretty well. And of course, the technology is wonderful now. Yeah. Um, how we ever were able to give a, any kind of time to people before uh, we had the current technology, I just, uh, it's amazing we were able to do any of that. 
Yeah, well, 55,000 popsicle sticks is a hell of a lot of popsicle sticks. It is. So, okay, so for, it's a four-lane road, right? It's not a, It's not an uncommon yeah. – yeah, uh, It's not. there's not uncommon infrastructure from what I could tell from pictures and whatnot for the start itself. Four-lane road, and how, how deep is that start with that? with that many athletes participating? Um, so I think it's probably goes back five blocks. Something oh, like that. Wow. Yeah. It's a, uh, and people funnel in from the sides with the, the, the parallel streets on either side uh, are either, either side have yeah. uh, color coded um, banners, I guess uh, of some kind flags or what have you to indicate where people should line up based on their, um, color-coded number, and uh, they funnel in, and it all works pretty well. Uh, but it's it's a it's a management uh, issue for sure. You know, you, the one thing we've done um, that uh, is special for us in many ways is we don't give the shirts out ahead of time. You have to get to the finish line uh, to get a shirt. You have to go the distance, and that's. Um, that adds some additional uh, hurdles, but it also is something that's very important to people because if they have a Bloomsday shirt, um, they feel like they've they've done something special. So, uh, but we had, and we did it from the very first year, but as we were growing bigger and bigger, we had, I think maybe by our fourth or fifth year, somewhere in there, uh, it actually took people longer to go through the T-shirt line than it had taken them to do the entire chorus. So <laughs> we actually uh, we, we considered doing away with that. Um, and some people say, well, it doesn't matter. You know, if, if you show up at the start, you're going to go the distance and just give us a shirt ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Of course, if you have a sponsor on the shirt, they like it because then, then people will wear the shirt in the race. All of that makes sense, but uh, it's been important to us to – to keep these the the tradition of you got to go the distance to get the shirt and uh so uh when we had the year when we had so many people backed up trying to get through the t-shirt lines we one of our volunteers said let me let me figure this out and he kind of uh, uh set out how this could could operate and uh, it's still a challenge every year we have great volunteers and they they make it work but uh uh, it's 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 tricky to try to give out all those shirts at the finish line, not give them to anybody that didn't actually just come from finish line and having mm-hmm. a course, mm-hmm. and, uh, and make sure that you you get people the shirt that they want. But it's a big tradition here. Yeah. What what about other infrastructure challenges or just the uniqueness of the size of that race and that location? Expo post race. The volunteers themselves. Any any unique angles that you've seen to just managing something at that scale? Well, the 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 expo is pretty straightforward. We have a real nice convention facility that uh, that we that we use, and we part of it is for the distribution, the number, and then we have, uh, of course, a big expo where um, you know various entities are selling things or yep. promoting their product. Yeah, uh, that all works pretty well. It's it's. Uh, you know, we we've when we've had different ways to enter and, ex, and exit that facility, we've wondered if if we we're going to have uh, backups, uh, but we haven't, and so so far so good on that one. Um, and then actually, I, I think our we're looking at our post race um, 
festivities. Uh, we have for a number of years uh, just to try to beef them up. I mean, I've seen the, uh, I've been there at, uh, at the uh, Boilermaker in Utica, New York, and that's a post-race party that uh, that I think is un, unparalleled. Of course, they, it's right by the brewery, so that helps. Yeah. But but we've tried to say, what can we do to make our uh, post-race area more fun? And uh, and so we we are finishing. We don't finish in the park anymore, but we we finish pretty close to it. So uh, we've tried to make that our area for post-race activities. And actually, then in the, the last uh, two or three years, they've been renovating the park, and so we had to kind of get out in the street. And it's so we're we're not we're not satisfied with what we've got there at the moment. But but that park is now back online. So once we're um, uh, up and running, uh, into past past the COVID days, uh, we'll probably be using that park. Uh, yeah, I have one more um, course centric question for you. I asked Dave this too. So I had asked him, you know, with all his experience, where, where do you think a race director should be on, on race day? If you think of the, you you have race directors that love the lead vehicle that like the tail end that like, um, to spend their time in the VIP tent, um, because they, they view their role as being an ambassador for sponsors. You have the, the course operations style race director who's decked out in zip ties and orange vests and three or four different walkie talkies. What, what was, what was your role managing something of this size as commander for, for Bloomsday? Well, it's funny because, um, because I was still an elite runner in the first few years, uh, I always ran the events and I've run it every year. Um, and when I took over as race director, I told the board, I said, if you don't want me to do that anymore, I said, I, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever, whatever you want as the race director. Cause it did seem weird to, you know, to, um, be out there on the course when things were happening that uh, a race director should probably be aware of and dealing with. But, um, but I, so I've run Bloomsday every year. And so basically uh, I'm worthless as a race director from the time the gun fires until shortly after I get to the finish line. But it does give me the ability to kind of see what goes on on the course, especially since I'm not at the front of the pack anymore. I can kind of see more of what the, um, what the, the mid-pack experience is like, I guess. Um, I think that's a pretty good place for a race director to be if they have delegated enough uh, that if there's an issue at the start or the finish, somebody is there who could manage and, and deal with it. I know Ju- Julia Emmons, uh, when she was the race director at Peachtree, uh, she said she would always put herself in the middle of the pack she just wanted to know what that was like and so um you know i guess she was i don't think she had um contact by cell phone or anything i think she just went out there and and made mental notes about what she experienced and uh, that works pretty well too but i think that's probably unusual Uh, i think most race directors want to be at at the start managing that uh, and or at the finish or both and um, and being on radio contact with uh, your other key organizers just so you kind of know what's going on because there's things that happen that somebody has to make an executive decision about yeah it's so interesting you got a totally different answer that to that question no matter how many <laughs> race directors you talk to i don't think there's a right or wrong one i just i just think it's fascinating to get each person's um 
point of view because they're all very passionate about the you know the the right the right way to yeah. to be the race director it's, it's always funny. different well it's funny because with me as i said i've run bloomsday every year i used to organize a saint patrick's day run a five mile run and i never ran that i was always on the lead vehicle or you know at the finish line and yeah. and that worked just fine uh but uh yeah so like you say you can you can make it work out different ways and it's just kind of up to the race to figure it out. Race race. Yeah. Yeah. So I have some organizational questions for you too. And I'm particularly interested in your point of view, growing an organization from, you know, literally zero to this mammoth marquee event that it, that it became. I'm curious to know how the Bloomsday organization, the actual team, how it was staffed up and what you chose to spend your money on where to invest money as the organization grew. And I'll give you just a second of, of context. I find you have a, there's a you know broad spectrum of race directors and timers and everybody out there. All of them you know want to create and grow their events into large, big marquee um, events. I don't know if many of them dream to be as big as Bloomsday, but Bloomsday, but I'm sure they would it would be a nice pie in pie in the sky dream for them. And so you have, let's say you have a small, a small company, a race, a racing company. You might have two racing companies of the exact same size. They both serve 80,000 athletes a year. One organization might be an individual or a husband and wife team or two business partners that do everything. And then you might have another organization that has a race director, an ops director, a sponsorship sales director, a registrar, a support person, a graphic designer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I have no idea if there's a right or wrong in there, but I'm I'm just curious to know for for you as the as the race grew, I'm curious to know how you layered in and when you layered in more responsibility, overhead, people with salaries, full time jobs. Are you able to walk me through kind of how the organization grew as the tail of the race? Sure. I mean, uh, well, you know, as I said in the early years, we were all volunteer through about fifth year. Then we hired a race director, and, and it was the race director's job to to basically basically manage all the volunteers and to be available for the board of directors. And that ha- we have added um, to that race director position. We have a, an office manager, um, and we have a, uh, a communications PR director. But that those are the only three paid positions, and. Everything else is done by volunteers, mostly um, board members, but some other key volunteers. I don't know how we're able to do that, to be honest, because some of those volunteer jobs are really a lot of work. Um, and the it's a, it's a good um, way to do it if you can get people to, to be that hardworking as volunteers. But um, I think more and more volunteers or, or people today see volunteers as being or volunteer work as being, yeah, I'll come hand out water for two hours or, you know, I'll help hand out numbers for three hours. It's very hard. And we're finding this as our board members uh, you know, who have been on there for years uh, get to where they want to kind of move you know, into retirement, um, it's hard to find people to, who will take over those positions as volunteers. So, um, 
so far we've been able to do it um, and and we may be able to do it for many, many years. I don't know, but it is one of those things that even going back to when we first had a hired race director, a lot of people were against it. Well, we're a volunteer uh, you know, organization and what will the volunteers think if we're actually paying someone? Mm-hmm. Well, what the volunteers thought, as it turned out, was they were happy that they had somebody that they could depend on to, to be available when they needed something done. Um, yeah. So, uh, but I, I think we're very, very uh, tight as uh, in terms of paid staff, uh, especially considering how big we are. Yeah. I wanted to make sure I heard you right. So you have th- three paid staff still today. That's right. Yeah. Just three. And, and, and you said race director, office manager, and then what was the third? Uh, PR communications. So that person handles a lot of email correspondence yeah. um, and then, um, you know, updating of the website and that kind of thing. That is fascinating. What about sponsorship and charity? Both of those are completely volunteer or they're just outsourced to a consultant uh, of some kind? Those are uh, – our race director handles those. So I handled okay. those when I was there. And and the way it would work is I would do make the contacts. Yeah. It came down to the contracts. Then we, we did pay a, a – um, uh, an attorney to make sure the contracts were the way they should be, but uh, yeah. but the actual contacting and the um, you know care and feeding of the sponsors was the race director's job. I had no idea. If you would have said, uh, I would have guessed you would have answered, I don't know, fourteen or so full time staff, and then you know your army of volunteers under that. Yeah, well, as I said, maybe someday that's the way it'll be. But yeah, because it is it is difficult to. Uh, expect people to work as much as our board works. Yeah. I have a couple lighter questions for you, less grilling here. So I'm curious to know of all the success that Bloomsday has had, which it's, you know, second to second to none. Do you have a, a favorite failure within all your experience, whether you were the race director or not, something that went, wrong or unintended, but that ended up being a, a positive for you in your eyes. Any any favorite failures in there? Oh, uh, probably the year that uh, part of our press vehicle uh, broke off and, and distributed the media in along the street. And I can only <laughs> laugh at it now because nobody got hurt. But uh, we had a truck that uh, some, somebody had built a platform on the back of uh, so that the ph- photographers could get down real close to the street level. And it, so it was just a few feet above the the street. And it was, um, I don't remember how it was connected to the media truck, but um, uh, it was supposed to hold three people. And at the last minute, six people jumped on. And then when the, when the uh, truck jerked to the start, it snapped the uh, what was holding the uh, all of this on, and the platform and all the photographers were were all over the street, and the the elite runners had to leap over them. I think uh, I think John John Sinclair might have won that that year, but uh, you know, again, it was a, at the time it was I, I didn't see it, but it was a. I guess I I I was farther back in the crowd, so I had to get past that stuff too, but. Um, 
But what it did do is it caused us to create a better media media vehicle. And I think actually the one that we uh, have had for a number of years uh, is is the best in the business. It's a it's a st- stair stepped uh, thing that will hold. I mean, we actually have two of them, but uh, it will hold um, you know maybe twenty media f- and photographers and and officials, and so everybody has a view, good view, and and it, nothing falls off of it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so that was we learned our lesson on that one, and uh, and. Uh, I, I've always thought that the most dangerous uh, place in any road race is the media truck. And I've been on a few of them and, you know, the media is always looking the wrong way relative to tree branches and, uh, you know, banners strung across the roadway and so on. So we're aware of that now and we're sort of, um, you know, making sure that that, that doesn't create a problem, but uh, we've had some very close calls over the years and, I think we've got it pretty well figured out now. That's an interesting one. I, that I, that's a different story than I would have would have guessed, but that's fascinating and funny. I'd, I'd love to know the stats on how many photographers are injured per year at a running race of some. They're always, you know, getting clotheslined or tripping over somebody or walking backwards over their own backpack and falling down. Oh yeah, exactly. great, great stories in there. Looking the wrong way. Yeah. Um, similar to that question, so. Bloomsday cumulatively has had something like 1.9 million athletes cross its finish line. Does that sound about right? Yeah, I don't know that we're quite that high. That might be participants, but um, I, I haven't uh, computed it recently. So That's true. That might be registrants, not finishers. Yeah. But let's just say it's a big number. Um, do you have a – do you have a – when you think about your your life as a race director your, or as a as – a, um, member of the Bloomsday community, let's say, regardless of whether or not you are actually the race director. Is there a, a moment or two that stick out for you as as a, a favorite, most meaningful moment after all those people and all those races and all those miles? Well, I think, um, I don't know if I can point to one thing, but we, we get these uh, emails or letters or uh, whatever, and people tell us the most incredible things. I mean, yeah. Um, they'll tell us that, um, you, you know, participating in Bloomsday helped them beat alcoholism or um, recover from um, grief after a really horrible loss. And, you know, it, it's, it's just incredible, you know, the, the things they tell you. And um, and I would never have said we set out to, to do that, but having been in it now a few years, we realize that happens and, and how important that is to people. Um, and it's a different experience. I've never had that experience. Um, so I don't know that from a personal point of view, but I know it from what people, what they've told us or, wow, somebody told us, somebody had had, um, a premature baby and, um, that almost didn't make it, and and uh, here years later, here I am in this photo finishing with my nine-year-old daughter. You know, it just blows you away. Yeah, really, what these events will do for people. Pretty amazing. I hope you're proud of that when you hear stuff like that as being part of being part of enabling that to to happen and creating that type of 
forum where that where that can happen. It's really amazing. I think all of our uh, organizers, uh, we, we try to share those uh, statements with everybody. So, that, you know, you're not just working for nothing here. It's yeah, pretty important work. Yeah. I have one last uh, question, and then I want to ask you about what you're up to now. What, one last historical question. Um, it's really just about the past year. Um, interesting timing for you because you you retired la- last year. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, at the end of uh, in um, June of 2019. June of 2019. So when when I am I, I imagine that when in the middle to end of March of this year the whole racing world, we all just sat around and every day, just every single race you knew of, just cancel, 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 delay, delay, delay. I would imagine that a lot of your constituents, especially locally or race directors around the country called you and said, what do you think? What does this mean? What should we, what should we do? Looking to tap into your experience. Um, I'm, I'm curious to know, did, did that happen? And what, what did you tell them at the time of the, uh, the outbreak, let's say. Well, mostly we were all scratching our heads. I don't know that I had a lot of great advice. And one of the reasons is we didn't know, you know, where is this going? And initially um, we, uh, we we relocated Bloomsday to the fall, to September 20th, thinking that by then we'd be past the worst of it. And um, and we thought we were really fortunate that we had found a backup date and we we're going to be able to do everything in the fall. And then we got to the fall and and it wasn't any better. And so, you know, by then we were kind of we had watched what was happening with other events and and uh, talked mostly email probably to people about what they were doing. And and everybody was, you know, really trying to figure out what's the best thing. Do we just. Uh, cancel it for this year or do we and if we cancel it what do we do with um you know the entry fees that people have given us it, it's yeah. it's a hard it's hard because usually you know the event has spent a lot of the money that's come in um through entry fees and so you can't give it all back um unless you've got a good reserve and so it was very difficult to know what's fair what's right what's best for the event and and um, and those were all questions that we all grappled with. And even though I wasn't the race direction, I was probably glad I wasn't. <laughs> um, I was still involved in the, a lot of those discussions. And uh, and it's it's hard. You just try to do the right thing as much as you can, and uh, and um, wait till you get back to normal. Yeah. What do you What do you think happens next in the space based on your experience from '77 through today? With Bloomsday? Well, I guess with the industry in general is kind of my, my question. How how what do you see happening uh in twenty twenty one? I'm I'm curious. And then sure, Bloomsday within that. I think the biggest thing, the biggest change is that because a lot of us have done virtual runs of one kind or another, um at Bloomsday and I suspect at other races, even as they get back to being uh in person races. I think a lot of people are going to say, hey, can we still do this? I can't make it this year. Can I do it virtually the way I did last year during the COVID thing? I think there's going to be, and I think we're going to try to figure out how can we do both? Uh, We want to get back back to, you know, the normal operation where we have a mass event. But for people that don't want to do that, can, can we come up with a virtual component? I think we can without too much trouble. And I think a lot of races are kind of, going to go that direction. I think uh, 
you know, you can't, you really can't beat it having uh, everybody together in a mass start. It's just yeah. totally exciting. But, yeah. uh, but I think there are people who, this year who told us, gosh, I've never been able to do Bloomsday before. And I've always wanted to get one of those shirts and now I can do it virtually. And yeah. thank you. So, um, so I think that'll be something that will be uh, a permanent part of a lot of events and how it's implemented, I guess will depend on the event, but I think that'll be, probably pretty common. Yeah. I think for the big marquee legendary events, I think that's, I think that's probably true. Like you can, if I could run Bloomsday from Virginia where I live, it's not quite the, not quite the same, let's say, but like you said, if you have somebody that's wanted that shirt for 10 years and that's their chance to get it, that's the only way they're going to get it. And uh, yeah, you're offering, you're offering uh, them the chance to do something they've always wanted to. I think that's great. And we actually, we actually used to do that for uh military who were, uh, stationed outside the area, but who had, had a connection to Spokane and wanted to keep their, you know, their, either their string of, of participating alive or yeah. just wanted to do it. So we used to do that uh, and we still would if, if there's interest, but, uh, but yeah, I think, um, I mean, it was interesting that way to, to, to hear from people who had always wanted to, to do it, but couldn't because it just couldn't, travel that far or, or whatever. So um, I think we'll become kind of a, a worldwide event uh, in that sense. Yeah, I hope you do. I think that's fantastic. And I think the, um, I'm trying to think of how to say this. I think the the prestige of what you built in the from 77 through 2019 will allow you to carry that forward, that virtual, you'll be okay with just the virtuals in 20. 20 and then it'll still be a prestigious part of the event going forward but i would say because of what had been built up to that point it it had the halo effect and you're enabling the ways for people to continue to access that but i think i think that's the way we're going to go so yeah see so don what are you up to now post post retirement are you doing long walks on the beach or did you take on another project well um Actually, my wife and I are downsizing, so we're spending a lot of time just moving stuff. But in terms of the sport, um, you know, I'm still active with the professional road riding, riding organization, and we have our circuit of uh, four of the classic uh, U.S. road races, uh, Gasparilla, uh, uh, Cherry Blossom, Peachtree, and, and Boilermaker. And so um, – and we've taken a very uh, – direct uh, approach to uh, doing drug testing at our events, making sure that uh, we're doing whatever we can to, to keep the competition fair. Yep. And uh, we're trying to extend that actually uh, to uh, smaller events that maybe can't afford to do drug testing, uh, but would like to uh, be involved in that in some way. So we're, we're working on a, a process that they can do that. Of course, during this, during this year, we haven't, been able to do much other than wait for th things to get back to normal. But um, uh, we think that that um, we've got a pretty good concept, uh, both for our circuit of those four big races and uh, hopefully can grow that a little bit in the years ahead. So it's uh, and it's fun. I guess that way I'm still uh, in contact with, with a lot of the race organizers that I've been uh, working with over the years and uh, and can uh, have a meaningful impact on the future of the sport as well. We hope. Yeah. Well, with your background as an athlete and a race director, you seem like the ideal fit for that. So I hope to hear more about it. Good, good luck for you. We'll root for you. 
Yeah, that's the pro, the pro circuit and the uh, pro allied membership is are the two things. And uh, yeah. Well, I always ask the same question in closing. It's a it's a nice simple one, which is now that you've kind of gotten a feel for the the nature of what we talk about and the types of things we're interested in exploring here. Is there anybody else, a person or two, that you might recommend we we speak to? Well, um, you know, some of the people I work with, uh, Phil Stewart at um, Road Race Management, he is, he's got just tons of experience. Um, and um, he's one that I, I would be interested in hearing him answer the same questions, you, same type of questions you've asked me. Um, you know, maybe uh, uh, Jeff Galloway, uh, he's, although he's not been a race director, he's sure seen a lot of races. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's done some running. So yeah, that, those are two fantastic choices. I don't know Phil. Um, I'll reach out to Phil and, uh, and see if we can get him on and have a, a chat. Actually, I don't know Jeff either other than by reputation, but I'll definitely reach out to both. Thank you for that. I think Jeff is somebody who has probably uh, encouraged more people into the sport one by one than anybody yeah. He's just, you see him uh, at a at an expo and he is, connect, whoever he's talking with, he's connected and listening and, yeah. and, uh, and he, he's just done a tremendous amount for the sport. I might reach, I'm definitely going to reach out to both and I might, uh, I might name drop Don Cardine when I reach out sure. so I know it's legitimate if that's okay. Sure. <laughs> Don, I, I thought this was great. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Um, these are all things that were generally genuinely interested in and uh for, for you in particular and the nature of what you built over all that time at at bloomsday i'm just i'm so appreciative that you were willing to to share the story or parts of it thank you for doing that it's been fun and i i love to i love to think back over the, this uh, process we had with bloomsday and just generally in the sport around the country it's been uh some exciting times and and never i always say you know, if somebody told me back in high school or even college that someday there'd be events with 50,000 people, what are you talking about? That's yeah. impossible. That can't happen. Yeah. And here we are. <laughs> you could you could fill up a football stadium with that amount of people. Yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. Don, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you, Mike. Hope to talk to you soon. 